The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Tonight we're going to be looking at the last four attributes on the sheet, what uh, Wayne Grudem calls summary attributes. God's perfection, His blessedness, His beauty, and His glory. It's been an incredible study as we've looked through. Uh, It's hard to keep it all in our minds, isn't it? He's divided the attributes of God into 20. I had 25 on my list, but you could see that he sometimes puts in parentheses some extra ones that could extend the list. Um, All I know is that it's an incredible thing to look at the character of our God. It's even more complex to try to figure out how all these attributes uh, communicate with one another, really, how they're all perfectly blended in God at all times. But they are. Now, these attributes that we're looking at uh, tonight, and by the way, uh, we, we covered last week some of the hardest doctrines that you're going to cover in the, in the being of God, namely His sovereignty and His will. And don't think that, that we're done looking at that. I mean, we're going to come at it again, God willing, in the future. But do you have any questions about those kinds of things? We didn't discuss, you know, the details of providence, for example, and how, how all of these things work. But do you have any questions from last week? about the will of God or sovereignty or any of these things, the freedom of God, omnipotence, anything. You all have it. Okay, well, that's encouraging. That's good. Sit down with me and instruct me because I'll tell you, I can't figure it all out. You know, how can it be that we live in a universe where it says the lot is cast into the lap but it's every decision comes from the Lord? That means if you play... You ever play the game of Yahtzee? You know, you roll the dice out and all that. Every single roll... I mean, why would God care whether it comes up a three or a four? But, he's, you know, that's what the Scripture says. And, and yet, in, the, in this universe, there's so much that happens that's clearly contrary to His expressed will uh, in, the, in His law. Uh, he, he permits so much wickedness and evil to occur. And He says that He doesn't do any evil. He's not tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. Uh, that's difficult to understand, isn't it? To try to work all that through. Yes? That God is unfair in, in doing these things. And yeah, Steve. It's a very common thought among Chinese. Yeah. And the only way you can deal with that is just consistently teach the scriptures yeah. week after week. It really is. I don't think I, I really don't think you're gonna open up the Bible and find a verse that's gonna satisfy that the question if the person doesn't have the overall framework of the doctrine of God that we're trying to communicate here. There isn't that single verse, the silver bullet verse. There are a lot of verses that teach clearly the sovereignty of God, but it's not satisfying to the human heart unless we've been regenerated and we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. It just takes a while to get your arms around it. Yeah, go ahead. Well, like I said before, you 
nowhere in the Bible does it mention fair at all. Yeah. We we as people think that there's this this thing of fair, yeah. but it's justice. Just like anybody, if they own a possession, they can do what they want. That's right, and 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 that's that's a that's a very good point, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it always has to be balanced with God's goodness and His love. Right. God is always good, always loving, even in His wrath, and that's the thing that needs to be. That's right. That's right. We're so involved with this and see the importance of the scripture. Right. And see, we can give other stories also where Chinese have responded to it. Yeah. And, you know, they're not saying it's unfair. They want it for their family. Yeah. Like uh, Simon and his family going now to teach in a Christian university. That's right. That's right. And then I'm thinking of another Chinese family with his wife, where the girl is saved. Yeah, the, the husband is not against that. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Landis, you had something. Go ahead. Uh, what came to mind is, of course, it's in part the context of creation, but uh, by faith we know, and that's the only way we can. And right. you know, it's like he talks about in First Corinthians two fourteen, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness. Right. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. So. Mm-hmm. Until we get them into the kingdom and mm-hmm. they have the Holy Spirit inside them, they're not going to be able to comprehend these things. That's right. You know, um, uh, I hate to remind you, but it's coming up on tax season, you know, the first quarter of the next year, and pretty soon in January you'll be getting your things in there. And uh, I resolved a long time ago that I wanted to pay the government every penny they deserve, but not a single penny more. Well, it's there's no problem overpaying your taxes, right? problem is is paying just the right amount and the thing on on the consideration of the doctrine of the sovereignty of god we want to go as far as scripture goes and no farther Um, god is not the author of evil he doesn't pull or tempt or pull anyone ever to do wicked things ever and yet he's constantly using wicked things to accomplish his ends all the time he just does this and it's hard for us to know how he doesn't get his fingers dirty. You know, how does he get involved in all of this? And yet he never actually gets, uh, you know, blamed for any of the things that happen. This is a difficult thing. So we want to go right up to where Scripture goes. But the thing is, Scripture doesn't seem to have any limit, does it? The, the sovereignty of God just runs all over the 66 books of the Bible. So I don't think we're ever going to really figure it out totally. But I, like someone said recently, you know, if I get to heaven and find out that I thought too highly of the sovereignty of God, I'll repent at that point. I don't think that's likely to happen. All right, let's zoom in now on summary attribute, and that's uh, 17, number 17, perfection. God is perfect. Grudem uh, gives a definition of that. God's perfection means that God completely possesses all excellent qualities and lacks no part of any quality qualities that would be desirable for him. In other words, he has it all. Anything that you could want as a positive quality, God has it. And he has it in in perfect measure and in perfect balance. That's the perfection of God. There's no lack in him. Let's put it that way. Herman Bobbing put it this way. God's perfection is that attribute which describes God as the sum total of all excellencies, as the one than whom no greater, higher, and better can exist. You can't do better or even imagine better than God is. Now, I know people think they can, and actually any idolater is thinking of a God that they think is better than the one of the Bible, but he isn't really, is he? The God of the Bible is the highest and best being there could possibly be. He is the greatest. He is the highest. He is the best, Uh, either in thought or in reality. 
It means that he is exalted above all shortcomings and limitations. God has no shortcomings and no limitations. Does the scripture teach this? Well, yes, it does. Matthew 5.48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, the Greek word translated perfect uh, is also translated in other places by the following words, complete, for example. Teleos is the uh, word. Uh, complete, lacking nothing, having reached or accomplished its appointed end or mature. These are the variety, uh, the variety of ways that that word is translated. It's the very same word that is used, um, uh, or the same Greek form or root that's, that Jesus states on the cross when he says, it is finished. What he's saying is it's perfect. And think of it that way. Jesus' final word on the cross in John's Gospel, he says, it is perfect. What is perfect? What is he talking about? Yeah, the work on the cross is perfect. All right, what are you going to add to it? Nothing. You can't add anything to perfection. And so when Jesus said, it is perfect, it's complete, it's done, it's finished, everything's complete, it's all done. Wow, what a statement. Well, everything God does is perfect. It's all complete. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not an outworking, a history. Uh, of course, when Jesus said it is finished, it didn't mean that there wouldn't be 2,000 years of missions. But the point is that there's nothing added to the cross. There's nothing needed. It's all there. It's all flowing from the cross. And so it is also the character of God. God is perfect. You can't add anything to Him. Everything is there. There's no lack at all. Psalm 18, verse 30 says, As for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. So that means everything that God does and everything that God speaks is perfect. Again, you can't add anything to it. You can't take anything away from it. Um, there's nothing missing. And by the way, that's something we need to keep in mind again and again with the Scriptures. There's nothing missing from the Scriptures. Do you ever think about that? There's nothing missing. His word is perfect. It's all there. And some might say, how can that be? You know, we still have disagreements. I wish there had been a, another, like a second Romans to sort through all of those things. God would say second Romans isn't needed. It's all there. Everything's there that's uh, needful for the church. And so all of that flows out of the perfection of God. Now, how is perfection a communicable attribute? Well, you could say if you knew me, you'd think it was impossible that perfection could be a communicable attribute. Can we be perfect? We try to. What was later? Later, not today though. <laughs> we keep trying. Go ahead, Jack. Well, what I'm were you saying? Just say? gonna say, you know, uh, it says, "Be you perfect as I am perfect." You know, I mean, yeah. it's just something to always strive for. Yeah. So there's the call of God on our lives that we are to be perfect. Boving put it this way: that creature is perfect in a creaturely finite manner, which fully answers to its norm. Namely, that is, it's exactly as it was created to be in all ways. In other words, God has laid out a norm for humanity. Uh, human beings are perfect when they perfectly line up with that norm. He's not asking anything more of us than He created us to be. Now, the measure of that perfection is what? Jesus Christ. The life He lived is the perfect human life. And therefore, it, and it could be lived. It wasn't like, you know it was impossible to be perfect. He did it for 30 plus years and, and would have done it for 60 or 80 or 90 or however many God ordained. He lived a perfect life. Every thought, every action, everything perfect. He is the standard of perfection. All right? But so also in this case, in Matthew 5:48, who is the real standard of perfection? God himself. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, we can't be perfect in the exact same way that God is perfect if what we mean is to have all of his attributes. Because remember, we divided the attributes into two categories. Remember? 
communicable and incommunicable. So what perfect means for us is that we would have all of the communicable attributes in perfect full measure. Isn't that something? So all of these communicable attributes, you go through and you look at them and you say, okay, goodness, mercy, love, compassion, knowledge, all of these things. This is your measure of perfection. Wow. Is that where we're heading? Yes, we're going to talk about that. But first of all, we uh, are perfect positionally in Christ if we're Christians tonight. Isn't that something? That God, when he sees you, he doesn't see any lack in you positionally. You can't, you can't be any better than a child of God. There's no higher position for a human being to be in. There's nothing lacking in your position if you're a child of God. There's nothing missing. It's not like that's a transitional state to something better. Not at all. You're at the highest level you can be at positionally the moment you trust Christ as your Savior. You're adopted into the family of God. Isn't that wonderful? You've arrived. You've got everything you could possibly want as an adopted child of God. You can't get any higher than that as a human being. Obviously, there is higher than that, and that's God himself, but he's not going to give you that. All right. But as a human being, the highest you can be is an adopted child of God. You are perfect in Christ. And so it says in Hebrews 10.14, it says, By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's an incredible verse, isn't it? Those of you in our Thursday Bible study, when are we going to get to it? Soon, okay? We've been studying the book of Hebrews. What do you see? Yeah. Can you just comment for us and give us a practical understanding of the difference between this human perfection and sinlessness? Sinlessness. Well, I just think sinlessness is just part of the perfection I have in mind. It doesn't go far enough. You know, you could be sinless. I mean, a rock is sinless, but it doesn't have all the perfections that I have in mind here. The perfections I have in mind are very active, aren't they? There's, there's a whole interaction. Jesus was not a rock sitting on a table. He was out interacting. He was demonstrating the character of God every day. God's goodness, His mercy, His patience, His compassion, His wisdom... And so it's out there doing things. Sinlessness is that you do all of that without sinning. I think that's... So sinlessness doesn't go far enough is what I'm... I have in mind an active righteousness that is our destiny in Christ. Isn't that something? That's where we're heading. We're heading toward perfection. Does that... Is, is it? Well, I'm just, I'm just thinking if sinlessness is obviously something we're not going to achieve. Here on earth, no. Right. right. Practical sinlessness. Is this perfection something that can be achieved not in this world. I don't believe so. I, I, think, I think that the Wesleyans believe you could, but they only did that by defining sin as an, as an active uh, transgression of a known command of God. Well, I think that sin is bigger than that. Um, and furthermore, they said you could be perfect for short periods of time. Well, I, you know, I, I saw a prayer yesterday. Christy, remind me what that prayer said. It's something like, Lord, I thank you that, that up to this point, you know, I've not been irritable, I've not been nasty, and whatever. But now I'm about to get out of bed, God. And, uh, you know, and now I'm really going to need your help. Right, so I think it's possibly perfect in short bursts, but that's not, I think, what we have in mind here. So, yeah. Well, uh, James says, For him who knows to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Right. So if we can't gain perfection in this world, then therefore we can't be sinless. Right, and I, I just, I think First John... First John's an interesting book because in one sense it says that if you sin, you're not a child of God. I mean, just use a very simple Greek present, you know. Anyone who sins, blah, 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 you know, wow. NIV helps us out by saying anyone who continues to live in sin, but that's not what the Greek tense says. It just, 
But we interpret it this way. We know that every First John 1 says we all sin, and if you claim we have not sinned, then you're, you're a liar. I mean, yes, we sin. The fact of the matter is, the standard is so impossibly high for us who are so steeped. I mean, we are marinated in sin, folks. And, and just, it's not going to happen. I think, it's a, I think that's the very issue that Paul deals with in Roman 8, Romans 8 when he says this body of death that we live in drags us down all the time. It is just wired for sin. You guys have been training it forever, and so have I. And it's good at it. So when you get a flash of anger or irritability or impatience or whatever, hey, you know, you trained yourself in how to do that, and it's not going to go away. But what's interesting about Hebrews 10.14 is that it's all in view there, isn't it? If, if you understand it or, or interpret it that way, I mean, there's different ways to interpret it, but I like the NIV translation. It says, by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever who? Who has he made perfect? Those who are, and I'm going to put it this way, those who are in the process of being made holy. Do you see that? So how is it that you can be made perfect and yet in the process of being made holy? Well, that's, that's you and me. That's every Christian who hasn't died yet. Everybody who's justified by faith has, is being made holy and they're already perfect. All right? Positionally perfect and every day we're being sanctified, we're growing in holiness. All right, so we're perfect positionally in Christ, but we're also striving for perfection, which could also be defined as maturity, maturity daily. 2 Corinthians 13, 11 says that we should aim for perfection. Aim for perfection. Um, in the new member class, I talk a lot about this. Okay, this is, this is my, my theory on the Christian life, and some of you have seen this recently, but this has to do with, with righteousness. This is Jesus' standard of righteousness here, 100%, right? That is what we call perfection. He's our standard, Jesus. This is righteousness along here, okay? And I mean by righteousness, I do not mean positional righteousness. I mean how you did today. How did it go? I mean, how did it go with your thought life? How did it go with your actions? Did you love your neighbor as yourself? And did you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And did you do it every single moment of the day? Well, anyway, that's righteousness, active, you know, lived out righteousness. This is the chart, I believe, corresponds roughly to every Christian life. And it goes like this. Oops, sorry. Bad day. Okay, um, so here's righteousness. What's going on from here to here? This is birth, by the way, first birth when you... So what's the deal? Why is it why flat line? Why is it a flat line, though? I mean, am I being ungracious here? <laughs> huh? There's no righteousness. Why does God see no righteousness from here to here? You're dead in your transgressions and sins, and it says anything that does not come from faith is sin. The moment you have faith, you're justified, right? So there's just no good works in here. And so anybody who thinks that they're going to give God their good works has got another thing coming because this is the chart of the person who never comes to faith in Christ and then they die and then they say, well, I've always got my good works to lean on. What? All right, there's nothing there. All right, but all of a sudden, there's life and this is practical righteousness. You start moving. Trust me when I say this is not your position. I already told you your position is perfect. You can't do any better than being in Christ. But this is how you're really doing. What do you notice about the chart? Up and down. Why up and down? Why not every day better than the day before? We sing about that, don't we? Every day is sweeter than the day before. My performance is always better than the day before. 
Give me another three weeks and I will be perfect. Right? Why not? Why not? We're struggling with sin. Romans 7. The very thing we want to do, we do not do. The things we hate, we do. We're struggling all the time. And so you overcome and then you don't, etc. What do you notice also about this chart? Not just the up and down. Yeah, generally, generally up. Now, I believe for some people the angle's higher than others. I just think some people just make it further than others. Other people, not as far. But if, if there's no space from here to here when you die, you're going to hell. You're not a Christian. You're a flatliner. You're dead in transgressions and sins. You never came to faith in Christ. You must bear fruit. You must walk with God. You must put sin to death. There must be holiness. What else do you notice? Well, I notice this, the gap from here to here. <laughs> do you see that? Now, that's only chart number one, okay? Here's chart number two, okay? This is what we see. By the way, what's this? Uh, it's when you die. <laughs> what do you call it? Dead. Dead. Well, what's the theological term for it? Glorification. God instantly transform you to be just like Him. Okay, He will do in you what you have proven for decades you couldn't do in yourself. All right, He will complete His work of salvation in you. Okay, that's how it goes. Now, I think it's our goal to make this line as aggressively up as possible. That we should put sin to death, that we should be warriors for Christ and bear good fruit for Him every day. That's what I think. We should just be going that direction. Now, this is not, however, the way it should appear to you. This is how it appears to God, not to you. Because you're not permitted to do this. You're not allowed to have a huge gap between here and what you perceive to be perfection. Not at all. You're just not allowed. Instead, the Holy Spirit comes to you and says, in effect, here's the way, walk in it. Today. Right? And you begin at whatever time you got up out of bed after praying that prayer and had your quiet time, etc. And you moved on. Okay, you can't ever go higher because, you know, in your mind, this is the perfection, standard perfection. But you can dip down, right? And when you dip down, oh boy, I was imp impatient there. You do what? What do you do? Confess your sin, repent, come back, walk with the Lord again along His standard. And then, so this is the way it seems to you, if you're honest. See what I'm saying? Okay? Now, this is your perception of 100%. It's what you think of as the perfect Christian life right here. But is it actually the perfect Christian life? No, because the that day you learned some more things in Scripture, you heard a good sermon or whatever, and the line just keeps rising and rising and rising and rising. In the absolute sense, you're so far from Christ, you'd be so discouraged if God told you just how far. All right, You, would, you just wouldn't believe. Because Jesus just passionately lived for the glory of God every moment, never once had a selfish thought, never once had an evil thought, nothing. Okay? But still, you're accepted in Christ. You're, you're perfect in Him and all that. And, he, and what does He tell you in 2 Corinthians 13, 11? What is He telling you there? Aim for perfection. So that's what I mean. Aim for it. Go out today and try to live it however you see it, right? But you didn't realize until you heard that sermon that you need to be faithfully praying for missions. And so you added that to your perception of the perfect Christian life. You see what I'm saying? And you didn't realize until, you, until this happened that you needed to you know, go out and make friends with your neighbors and eventually lead them to Christ. Or you didn't realize that you needed to be taking a systematic theology act seminar or something like that. You didn't realize that systematic theology was the job of every Christian and not just... And so little by little, your perception of the perfect Christian life just keeps rising and rising and rising until you die. And that accounts for the big discrepancy between the actual perfection and your performance. There's just a big gap. But God loves you anyway. He does. He covers that gap with grace. If you ever think you don't need grace, keep in mind that gap 
in your, you know, I mean, we need grace at every moment. Yes? Does the teleos or mature life have in view this second one that you are doing now what you're supposed to be doing and you are walking in obedience and faithful? Yeah. Yes. I really think that God is well pleased with this, with this chart. If you're a baby Christian, this is what he's laying out before you. How do I know that? Because he hasn't convicted you yet of all of those things. He hasn't put it on your plate yet. And this is why I think if something's on your plate, he has put it on your plate. Of those things that he's put on your plate, let's speak more plainly, of those issues in your life that he has convicted you of, how many should you be addressing actively and working on? How many? What percentage? 100%. Can you say, well, I'm going to zero in on this one today. Okay, I know that God's working on these 16 areas in my life, but I'm going to zero in on this one today and I'm going to let the other 15 go. Today's going to be a really good day on patience. I'm going to be terrible on all the other things, but I'm going to be really good on patience today. You can't do that. Whatever God has brought to your consciousness, you must, as best you can, by the power of the Spirit, walk in that way. We're not ever going to make friends with sin. Never. God doesn't. So that's my kind of... I don't, is, it, is this too complicated? Do you know what I'm saying about the rising line of 100%? It's, it's just what we think of as a perfect life, and it just keeps growing and growing. That's sanctification. Now, perfection is in your future, though. It's in your future. All right, we're striving for perfection. We're, we're moving ahead. Uh, Colossians 1.28, we proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone. By the way, what does that mean? We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom. What does that mean? We proclaim Him. Who's the Him? Christ. We proclaim Christ. What does that have to do with the charts I'm, I'm dis displaying here? Why does proclaiming Christ help in this process? Keeps the standard right in front of us. We see Jesus as our standard and we remind ourselves again, lest we become arrogant and boastful. <laughs> we see again what the standard is and say, wow, you know, I can accept that big gap between me and Jesus because I'm not like him. I want to be. I really do. I hunger and thirst for righteousness and I'll be satisfied someday. But um, yeah, we proclaim him so that we might present everyone perfect in Christ. So perfection's in our future. Um, how about uh, 2 Corinthians 39? Uh, Paul says, we're glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. Boy, there's a lot behind that, but we don't have time for it. But then he says, and our prayer is for your what? Perfection. I'm praying for you to be perfect. And then the NAS, I uh, like this. It says, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What's the context there, Steve? What's going on in James 1, first couple of verses there? Trials. trials. Count it pure joy when you go through all these trials. Why should you count it joy? Because if, according to this verse, if you don't go through trials, you will be what? Imperfect. Just reverse the descriptions at the end. Incomplete. All right, you'll be imperfect, you'll be incomplete, and you'll be lacking in many things. Now, what will you be lacking in? This is a new thought for me today. I hadn't thought about it before. You know what you'll be lacking in? Communicable attributes. That's what you'll be lacking in. You don't have mercy. You don't have compassion. You don't have goodness. You don't have holiness. You don't have wisdom, right? You're lacking those attributes. God doesn't want you to lack them. And so this is what I wrote. The key concept in this part of James is that we all lack something in our Christian character and walk. Trials come to bring us to perfection, namely that state wherein we lack nothing of all the attributes that God has communicated to us and that we possess them all in full measure. So not only do we have to have the attribute, you have to have it in full measure, right? So I got the image of a balloon, right? <laughs> You've got to go collect all the balloons and then you've got to see them blown up to their full size. 
If that's unhelpful, ditch it entirely. Forget it. Pop it. Don't use it. Okay? But the idea is that we acquire these attributes and then we see them what? Grow and develop. It's not enough to just be a little compassionate. You have to be as compassionate as Christ. Yes? Second Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 8, after that whole list of qualities that seem to be uh, building one on top of another, it says, For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it seems that the knowledge is there, right. and we need to live up to the knowledge that we have. Well, as you see on the sheet, that's the very next verse I thought of, and I, I, I think, you know, that. thank you, Steve. <laughs> you and I were just we're singing from the same piece of sheet music, and I think that's wonderful when that happens. This, this is actually the best verse, the one that Steve pointed out, for this process of acquiring attributes and seeing them develop. What it says is his divine power has given us everything we need for what? Life and godliness. Just stop a moment. How would you define godliness? What does it mean to be godly? Holy. Godlike. Let's pick up on that. Godliness would be godlikeness, right? What does that have to do with our attribute study? How would you put it in the attribute terminology? Have the communicable attributes, right? So godliness is having the communicable attributes, the ones he intends for you, right? And having them in what measure? The full measure, the measure of Christ, right? So godliness is, you know, it says his divine power has given us everything we need for life. I think that's, you're not a flatliner anymore. You're alive now. You're born again. Everything you need for being born again and growth in godliness. How? Through his very great and precious promises. All right. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them, listen to this, you may participate in the divine nature. Isn't that just the same thing we just said? Participate in the divine nature. How would you put that, Jim, in our communicable attribute terminology? Reagan is still getting the communicable attributes. How about the incommunicable ones? Can you can you grab the all right, those are not those are out of reach. We're not going to get those. We will never get those. Don't worry about them. You're not going to be tested on them on the final day. Don't worry about them. It's the communicable attributes that he wants to see developing in you, and that's what it means to participate in the divine nature. You see? We are going to participate in the divine nature. We're going to be like God. The very thing that, that the devil tempted Eve with. We're going to get it through Christ. We're going to be like God. We're going to participate in the divine nature. Okay. For that very reason, we should make every effort to add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and perseverance godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness and brotherly kindness love. For what very reason? Why should we do this? Because it's already granted to us to, to end up. God says you're going to finish. You're going to succeed. So go out there and do it. I come and tell you that you're going to win. I am a prophet of God and I do all kinds of miracles. I convince you you're going to win the gold medal in the biathlon in the next Winter Olympics. So get out and practice, right? Well, you've already been destined to win the gold. So you should be highly motivated to get out and practice. You say, but I've never cross-country skied. It's all right. God's power will take care of all that. Go out there and learn the biathlon. What is the biathlon? It's a combination of skiing and shooting, but you'll find out. The point is you've been destined to win the gold medal, so get out there and practice. Work hard because your efforts will produce a good result. That's what he's saying. So we grow in, in perfection. Does it challenge you to have perfection laid before you as the standard every day? Does that bother you? Does that trouble you? It troubles me. It's intimidating. How is it intimidating? How does that intimidate you? 
sin every day that I build up those habit patterns you talked about. Um, I'm looking at the absolute perfect standard. Mm-hmm. I, I fear that I can't do well enough, and so it keeps me from yeah. giving it my... Uh, and that's the whole thing. I think if you understand the plan of salvation properly, then you're freed from that. Because if you know that positionally you're already perfect in Christ and you can't be more accepted or loved or in a better situation than being a child of God, then that doesn't you don't get your strength drained or your strength sapped. The Roman Catholic system that I grew up in reversed justification and sanctification. In other words, show it to me and then I'll justif- justify you. Get out there and do it and then we'll see. Wow. That's called earning your salvation, right? Every single day you're out there, you got it. And my feeling is you just give up. It's so discouraging. It's overwhelming. You can't do it. And so you just say, wow. But if, on the other hand, God says, you're a child of God. You're adopted. You're secure. Now get out there and by my power, go put sin to death. Go grow in holiness. Be like Jesus. You know, and then it's not intimidating or it's not daunting. But one thing that that standard does is I think it keeps you on your knees, doesn't it? keeps you humbled. I mean, to have to go and confess those sins to God again and again and again. That's why I've said before, one of the, to me, one of the greatest, most important teachings from Christ ever is blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You're never going to stop being a beggar. This standard of perfection will keep you a beggar the rest of your life. It just will. Because you, know, you just know that you're not where you need to be in any category. Your prayer life isn't where it needs to be. Christianity is a relentless religion. It's just utterly relentless. Sometimes I get discouraged about that. It's like, Lord, you just want it all, don't you? You just want it all. I've said that to him. Yes, I do, but I give you it all too. All of it is a gift, free gift. But it is. It's relentless. There's never any time where you can say, God, can you just give me a week off from Christianity? Just a week off to do whatever I want? I mean, just a week off to just whatever? Well, no, I can't. What does do whatever you want mean? You mean go sin? You know? No, never. Because sin is your enemy. Finally, in the end, there will be total perfection in heaven. Isn't that wonderful? Somebody read these verses for me on page 3, Hebrews 12, 23. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Isn't that wonderful? What a gift to the spirits of righteous men who have been made complete, perfect, lacking nothing. All the attributes are in place in their perfect measure. Isn't that something? All right, that's our future. All right, that's perfection. Let's look at the next attribute, and that is blessedness. This is an incredible study. This is, this is an explosive topic. If you understand what blessedness is, namely happiness, happiness, you say, how is that an attribute of God? Is God a happy being? Is our God a happy being? perfectly happy and good thing too you know good thing I've said before why would you want to learn from a disgruntled irritable God you know it doesn't make any sense oh God show me your your, your ways of course you're always out of sorts you know but <laughs> no he's always in sorts he's always happy and blessed he's a blessed God he's a happy being Grudem says to be blessed means to be happy in a very full and rich sense. God's blessedness means that God delights fully in himself and in all that reflects his character. Herman Bovink put it this way, God's blessedness comprises three elements. Number one, that God is absolute perfection, absolute life. Number two, that, his, that this perfection is the object of God's knowledge and love. In other words, he knows that he's as perfect as he can be. God knows that. It's not like he's ignorant of the fact. 
And third, he's very happy about it. <laughs> he's very, very content and happy with who he is. He does not have a self-esteem problem. Let's put it that way. He is absolutely, totally happy and content with his attributes. He couldn't be any better, and he knows it, and he's happy about it. And you think, that's weird. No, it isn't. The fact of the matter is that's what heaven will be like for you. Heaven is not reunion with grandma, and it most certainly is not the mythical heavenly golf games that I've heard so much about recently. Boy, that grieves me at funerals when people talk about golf games. All right? That is not heaven. It's not pearly gates. It's none of that. What is heaven to the Christian? God. Right. And so I want to be with a being that is happy with himself because I'm going to be happy with him too. All right? That's the whole point. So God is blessed. I'm not going to read over these things at the bottom, but you can when you get a chance. Let's look at biblical support. There's two verses that use the Greek word makarios. Makarios is the Greek word for blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If you translate the word blessed, happy, in a deep, full, and rich spiritual sense, you can see what a radical thing it is that Jesus said that. Happy are those who cry. <laughs> that's just a strange thing, isn't it? But that's what he's teaching. All right, the happiness, the blessedness. Well, in 1 Timothy 6 and in 1 Timothy 1, it uses this adjective of God himself. Of God himself. Isn't that interesting? Look at 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. It says, which uh, just picking up in the middle of the thought, with Paul, by the way, you're always picking up in the middle of the thought, so don't let it trouble you. The NIV's broken him up into sentences, but the fact of the matter is he's always right in the middle of a thought. Anyway, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed, that's Makarios, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever and ever. What does that verse tell you about God? That he is what? tells you many things, but as we're zeroing in on blessedness, what is it? What is this verse telling you that God is? Blessed. Meaning what? He's happy. He's a happy being. He's happy as the King of kings and Lord of lords living in unapproachable light. He's content with that. And then, even better, and this was the theme verse for, for John Piper's study on this. John, John Piper wrote a whole book on this called The Pleasures of God. God's delight in being himself. You think, wow, what a... Well, you got to read the book. It's incredible. But 1 Timothy 1.11 was his key verse on this. He speaks about doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. And Piper rearranged it to say the glorious good news of the happy God. Why is it good news that God is happy? Why is that good news? It may not be news, but to me it's news. I, I never, before I read this book, it's like, that's an odd thought that God's a happy God. Steve, why is it good news that God is that way? One experience is wrath. One experience is wrath. Okay. Well, it's like you said, it's his satisfaction and it's our delight. Mm -hmm. We want to please him. We want to please him. And, and he is so set up in himself that he is therefore a river or a fountain of blessedness to everybody else. You see what I'm saying? He doesn't lack anything. And that affected my concept of worship, by the way. What am I bringing to him? <laughs> well, here, God, here's something you might need. You know? <laughs> no, 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 that's not it. It's not something he might need. It's that I want to get close to the fountain of blessing. I want to be near being like that. I want to be near someone who is so well put together that he's 100% blessed. 
he's 100% happy. And then this very familiar verse in Matthew 25, the parable uh, of, the, of the talents, 5, 2, and 1, that were given out to the servants. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness or enter into your master's joy, as another translation puts it. Come and share your master's happiness. What invitation is the master giving to him there? Enter into the way I look at things. Come get near me. Be with me for a while. That's the reward. You get to be near me. You get to be with me. You get to share in my happiness. And actually, this informs my entire theology of rewards. I believe that there are meticulous rewards on Judgment Day. Not just one overall thing, but enter into your master's happiness. I've interpreted to be God will show you how happy he was with each of the things you did through faith in his name to reveal his glory. When you went into the room, closed the door and prayed to your father who is unseen, God was pleased with that. Let me show you how I was pleased with that. That is your reward. God's pleasure in that event. Remember how he said, don't pray so that everybody can see you, but close the door and your father will reward you. Well, what do you think the reward is? He's going to enter. He's going to let you enter into his happiness in that moment. Can you get a better reward than that? Oh, I wanted a trinket. Forget the trinkets. Have God and God's happiness. I can't imagine a better reward than that. And I'd like lots of them. You know, I'd like to witness lots and give lots of money away. And, you know, all of the acts, the good deeds that God has for us so that I can enter into lots of God's happiness on that, at that reward. I think that's exciting. That's exciting. So that, there are three verses that talk about God as a happy being. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does what? Whatever, Whatever pleases, him. pleases Him. Wow. That's a good deal, huh? Are you wishing that you could be God? <laughs> no, of course not, because whatever pleases him is righteous and holy and good, isn't it? And then Psalm 135, verse 6. The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and the earth, the seas and all their depths. All right. What biblical support is that our God is a happy God? It is all over the Bible. You don't have to work hard to find it. Genesis 131, God's pleasure in creation. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. He was pleased with it. Psalm 104.31 has a prayer to this effect. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in His works. May God be what? May He be what? Pleased or happy with what He's done. Isn't that incredible? How about God's pleasure and His fame? These are the, the chapter titles of Piper's book. God is pleased with His fame. Uh, 1 Samuel 12:22. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. God enjoyed calling Israel his own people for the sake of his great name. It brings him pleasure. Uh, God's pleasure in bruising his son. This was an interesting chapter that, that he gave us. By the way, God has absolute perfect pleasure in his son. He said it twice in Matthew's Gospel. Remember? One of the two times he said how pleased he was with his son. Baptism and then what? Mount of Transfiguration. Absolutely. He speaks from heaven and he says, I want the whole world to know how pleased I am with my son. I really enjoy Jesus. <laughs> that's what the Father is saying. I really love my son. And that's, by the way, the love that saves you. Did you know that? Because he sees you in Christ. You're beloved in Christ. And so the love he has for his son, that's the love that you get. Couldn't be better. He prays this in John 17, that they would know that the love that you have for me is in them. It's the very same love. That's incredible. Well, God was pleased not just in His Son, but He was pleased to crush His Son on the cross. Isn't that incredible? He, it was pleasing to Him to do that. 
And that shows how strange this topic is. Isaiah 53.10, it says, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Do you see that in the NAS? He was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And if he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. We've talked about that before. God also is pleased to save you. He enjoys saving people. Did you know that? I mean, God really enjoys saving people. If you heard the sermon that the speaker preached on Sunday, he talked from Luke 15. What, what does the good shepherd do when he finds the sheep? And by the way, not if he finds the sheep. You notice when I read the scripture, I emphasize that. And when he finds the sheep, okay, what does he do? He rejoices. They kill the fat. No, they don't do that. Um, what do they do? Um, that doesn't fit that analogy. But they, they have a celebration. Come celebrate with me. I found my wandering sheep. What does the woman do when she finds the coin? Calls her neighbors and spends it on a big party. I don't know. But she enjoys celebrating. What does the father do when the prodigal son comes back? They have a party. They celebrate. All three. I don't think we should miss the fact that there's a celebration in all three stories. And why? Because God says that there is... Look what Somebody read Luke 15.10 at the bottom of the page there. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, I have a question for you before you turn the page, everybody. Who's doing the rejoicing in Luke 15.10? doesn't really say, does it? It just says that the rejoicing is done where? In the presence of the angels. It doesn't say who's doing the rejoicing. But you know who I think is doing the rejoicing? Father. Father's doing the rejoicing. He's celebrating in the presence of his angels. So it's like, hey, angels, we got another one over in Erie and Jaya. There's a celebration going on. God enjoys saving people. Look at the next verse, Luke 12, 32. Somebody read that one. I love this verse. Isn't that incredible? What a great verse. Do not be afraid of, of anything, little flock. Because your father enjoys giving you the kingdom. He loves to do this. This is what he enjoys doing. And then Isaiah 62, 5, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. God's pleasure in doing good to all who hope in him. God's pleasure in the prayers of the righteous and in personal obedience. All of these things are testified to. Our God is a pleased God. I added one also. God takes pleasure in judgment. This is a difficult verse. But uh, in Deuteronomy 28, 63, it shall come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish and destroy you. I, I know I irritate you with these verses, but they're in the Bible, folks. They're right there. God delights either way. He delights either way. And yet, and yet, read the next verse. Jim, read that one. Ezekiel 18:23. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord, Rather, I am not pleased when they oh, sorry, turn try again. Rather, from their ways and live. Am I not? Excuse me. Am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Good. So, what is Jim? What is he saying there? What brings him pleasure in that verse in Ezekiel eighteen twenty three? Repentance. Repentance. And apparently, it brings him no pleasure to kill the wicked. I mean, just to read it that way. So, in one sense, he's delighted, but in another sense, not pleased. And so. There are many verses in the Bible that speak about, about God being not pleased. Like when David committed sin with Bathsheba, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So it's really kind of hard to figure God out on this. In one ultimate absolute sense, he's happy all the time. You can't get to him. You can't drag him down with your problems. Okay, But 
in the matter that we're discussing, namely David's actions with Bathsheba, God was displeased concerning that. But it didn't drag him down from his position of blessedness. Does that make sense? It's hard to get at, but go ahead. He's pleased with his justice. Right. He has to be. Yeah. Right, and he delights in it in that sense, but there's no direct pleasure the way there is over sinners that repent. He's not saying, oh good, there's another one that we can burn in hell. That's not it. But he is pleased to have a display of his righteousness there, or else he wouldn't do it, folks. I mean, that's the thing we need to keep in mind. He doesn't have to do that. Nothing's constraining him. So he is pleased to do that, but he has pleasure over the repentance of one sinner, Ezekiel 18, very clearly. There was a hand over here? No? Okay. All right. Now, is perfection a communicable attribute? Yes, we've already talked about that. Uh, where I'm sorry, not perfection. I, that should have been changed. Happiness or blessedness um, is a communicable attribute. Uh, Grudem put it this way. We imitate God's blessedness when we find delight and happiness in all that is pleasing to God, both those aspects of our own lives that are pleasing to God and the deeds of others. And we find our greatest blessedness, our greatest happiness in delighting in the source of all good qualities, God himself. In other words, you want to be really happy Find out what God's happy about and change your tastes until you get happy about the things that make God happy. You see? Change your taste. That's hard to do, isn't it? <laughs> Stop caring about worldly things and start thinking about the things that make God happy and then you will be happy too. And your final happiness will be God himself. All right? Any questions about blessedness? All right, beauty. Say, what is beauty? Well, it's, it's actually very hard to define beauty. Philosophers have worked hard on defining beauty. You really couldn't put it into words, could you? I think beauty is this kind of thing that God set up your brain for, right? And so that something fits in a certain way into your brain as beautiful because God ordained that it be beautiful. You see? God's beauty, according to Grudem, is that attribute of God whereby he is the sum of all desirable qualities. Bavink said, who made these objects endowed with unchangeable beauty unless it be the unchangeable beautiful one himself? God is the supreme of beauty because his being is characterized by absolute unity, harmony, and order. Well, this is what I wrote. We think of beauty as a matter of the eye, but it actually is a matter of the mind. If an aged man thought he lost his wife of 60 years in an earthquake, and if he somehow still retained the hope that she was alive in the rubble, and diligently searched for her through the destroyed homes of his neighborhood, and if he suddenly found her alive in a crevice in the foundation of their home, dusty, muddy, perhaps a little bloody, certainly disheveled, would he not confess her to be the most beautiful sight his eyes had ever seen? Does not every true Christian find infinite beauty in the mental image of a dead Savior on a bloody cross? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, and yet there's a beauty there, isn't there? There's a beauty by faith. God created all things and made them beautiful in their own proper proportions. For example, a ripe and perfect apple. Did you ever see an apple so good that you couldn't eat it? You know, it just looks so good. Just a perfect apple. You just wanted to keep it on your desk. And I've done that before. And, and then after a while, it doesn't look the same. <laughs> Might as well just go ahead and eat it. Or a school of tropical fish in crystal clear water, a flaming orange, red, and purple sunset over a jagged range of mountains. These things have beauty because they fit somehow into a place God designed for them in our minds. Now, here's the point. The source of all of those, all of those things is God himself. So what must he look like? You see what I'm getting at? If there's anything beautiful in this world, and there are many beautiful things in this world, what must the source of it all be like? God himself is called beautiful. In Psalm 27, 4, 
It says, One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek Him in His temple. He wants to look at God. He wants to see God's beauty. Isn't that something? Do you think of God as beautiful? It's kind of hard to figure out what He would look like. I guess I would just think that He would satisfy us by us looking at Him. He'd be like, look at that. Isn't that something? I, I just wonder what it's going to be like. You know, it's hard for you to think about just doing anything forever and ever, right? Do you think about your, what's your favorite food? A lot of people like pizza, ice cream, whatever. Can you imagine taking your favorite food and eating it forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? <laughs> you know? Or, or, or you could, you know, think about your favorite game. Get a tape of your favorite basketball game and watch it forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And, and, and that's why heaven is so problematic for us, right? It's just like after a while, anything in this world gets flat, right? But the thing is, God isn't that way. Why will heaven not be boring? Why do you think? Jonathan, what were you going to say? Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you said it. Yeah. Maybe in our understanding, beauty is something that's associated with rareness or uncommonness. If we saw the same sky every night and it was glorious, after a while it would be boring to us. Right. And, and maybe the uh, infinite wisdom of God or the, in, in the uh, infinite beauty of God is that we can never exhaust the, His majesty and His glory. Yeah, I wrote about this in the, the Christmas letter that we sent out um, that uh, I, I got a new understanding of this in Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born and to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then it says, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. What does that mean, of the increase of his government there will be no end? No end to increase? How can that be? Yeah, it's going to get bigger and bigger. But how does that happen? I think what happens is as you watch God, as you learn of Him, you're going to keep seeing more and more of God. And so His kingdom is going to keep getting bigger and bigger. You're going to know more of His glory. You're going to see more of His wonder. And you're just going to be even more amazed all the time. So heaven is not a static place. It's a dynamic growing place. Yes. right. Now, let me ask you a question. Is beauty a communicable attribute? You may be wondering about this, okay? <laughs> now, on the late night TV shows or whatever, they're talking about all the beauty programs or you could buy something to make your face beautiful or cosmetics or surgery, heaven forbid, or who knows what. Is beauty, the kind of beauty we're talking about here, a communicable attribute? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Look at Revelation 21.2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. If you're a Christian, you will someday be ravishingly beautiful. That brings us to our, our final attribute tonight, and that's glory. And it's really kind of hard to divide up beauty and glory. But um, Grudem, Grudem gives us, I think, I, actually, if I could talk to Brother Wayne, I might adjust his definition a little bit. He says God's glory is a created brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. So to him, the glory is always bright. God's glory is always a bright, shining thing. I actually don't think so. 
I think it's sometimes that, and in the end it will be that perfectly. But right now there's glory that you really can't see, but you can only accept by faith, right? There's a glory you can't see, but only accept by faith. All right? God's, I, I basically give you three aspects of God's glory. God's glory of reputation through His mighty works. God's glory perceived by faith, bottom of page 7, and then the glory seen by the eye on the final page. Do you see that, those three? All right. So what do I mean by glory? Well, I think that glory is the radiant display of God's attributes, or we could say God's attributes put on display. All right? So if God's attributes, all of these attributes we've been talking about, are put on display in some way, God is glorified. Right? So first of all, God's glorified through His reputation when He does things. For example, Isaiah 6, 3, it says they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Well, how did the whole earth get full of His glory? How did that happen? He created it. He wove His glory into the very fabric of the physical creation. It's already there in the way that He created the world. So He gets glory that way. And then in Exodus 14, 17, and 18, it says, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. What glory did God gain that day? What's it talking about anyway? What, it was Red Sea and they drowned, they all died. What glory did God gain by doing that? Yes, he took on the most mighty nation on earth and they were nothing for him. And... You know what happened as a result of this? Rahab got saved. Rahab the prostitute got saved because of this. You know why? Because she heard the reputation of God and she trembled and she accepted the spies in and she believed and she got saved and became Jesus' great, 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 whatever grandmother as a result because of this, because he, she heard about God's mighty power. And those stories are still being told, aren't they? Even here at First Baptist Church. And Isaiah 43, 7, when he called... Uh, his nation, Israel. Everyone was called by my name, he said, for whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So if you're a child of God, you are created for his glory. What does that mean? Put God's attributes on display. How do you put God's attributes on display? How do you put a display of God in your life? How can you do that? Like this? Do this? Walk, aim for perfection? Walk like Jesus? Are you going to put Jesus on display that day? Yeah, you will. You'll show His compassion. You'll show His mercy. You'll show His love. You'll show His justice. All of these attributes as you walk with Jesus, you're going to put Him on display. All right. Is that a radiant, bright, shining light? No, it isn't. But it's still the glory of God. Secondly, a glory perceived by faith, John 1.14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And what does it say next? We have seen His glory. Do you see that? Is that the radiant, bright, shining light? Well, you could say yes because John was up on that Mount of Transfiguration. And he does, Peter talks about that. We saw the light that shone around him. We saw it. But I don't think that's what he was talking about because he uses the word glory all the way through his gospel. What is the glory that John's talking about in John 1.14? We have seen his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. What glory is John referring to there? His life of obedience, his miracles, his death on the cross. All of that glorified God. The glory of the incarnation and then the glory of the crucifixion. John 12, 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. How did the cross glorify God if glorify means put God's attributes on display? 
How did the cross put the attributes of God on display? Justice, wrath, mercy, goodness, love, grace, omniscience in that there are so many prophecies fulfilled. I mean, it's all there. He did it all. It's the, it's the most efficient portrait of the glory of God ever that does not include a radiant, bright, shining light. Okay? And there was no radiant, bright, shining light that day. Is there a radiant, bright, shining light around God? Oh, you better believe it. You had better believe it. What does it say in 1 Timothy 1? We already read this, but now we're going to emphasize something different. Which God will bring about in His own time, God the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives, where? In unapproachable light. What does that mean, unapproachable light? Landis, what do you think that means? Yeah, you can't get close. Can't get close. And so up on the mount, Moses said, God, show me your glory. He said, don't want to do it. Because uh, I would kill you. I would literally kill you. If you saw my glory, you could not survive. It would kill you. It would destroy you. And so I'm going to put you in a cleft of the rock and I'll have my goodness pass by you and you'll see just a small part of that radiant, bright, shining light. Isn't that ridiculous how, how people talk about, the unbelievers talk about how Genesis makes no sense because there was no sun until the fourth day so there couldn't have been any light? What? <laughs> Look, God delegated light to the sun on the fourth day. Up to that point, he'd been handling it himself. Okay? It's not a problem. Okay? He can do light. That's, that's easy for him. Light is a display of his nature. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Well, see, now we know the Bible's just myth because it, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't, make, it doesn't make any sense. God can do light. And you know why? Because light is display. Think of this, all right, you talk about the world with all of its like flowers and birds and tropical fish and all that, turn the light out, all of it, no sun, no moon, no stars, no artificial light, you can't see any of it, it's all out there with its attributes, but none of it comes into you. It's only until the light comes that everything becomes visible and flows into your mind. And so God's light is his self-revelation, so the glory is his desire to get himself out into your mind so that you might see him and know him. And so an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. And then Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus put, took with him Peter, John, James, and John, the brother of James. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. Now, what percentage of the glory did we see that day up in the Mount of Transfiguration? What do you think? Jesus was... Was that the full display? No. <laughs> He'd be dead. So we don't have any idea. One percent? I have no idea. Can't, can't reduce it to that. Just bright enough to lay them low. What? Less than 1%. All right. We don't know the luminosity. But get this, someone, someone read John 17, 24, the next to last verse there. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So what does he pray for? What does he want us to receive? He wants us to have the thing that was denied to Moses on the mountain. I want them to see me full on. I want them to be able to survive. And that's why flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In a sense, everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to be pulled out of these earthly bodies and moved into resurrection bodies because you can't survive the full display of the glory of God. And as has already been mentioned a moment ago, in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no sun, no moon, no stars, no lamp, no artificial light, nothing but the glory of God and these transparent stones like turquoise and beryl and all that that 
take the glory of God and just refract it and make it just incredible. And that's the New Jerusalem. And that's incredible, isn't it? The glory of God. And we are five, seven minutes over, but I wanted to finish the attributes. There will be no acts next week for me anyway. If you guys want to spend Christmas Day in here, you go right ahead. And same thing on New Year's Day. Uh, it's one of the vagaries of our calendar that the two are seven days apart. So for the next two full weeks, there will be no um, acts. In the new year, we are hoping to begin regular Wednesday night outreach. Uh, so be praying about being involved in that. Um, and that will involve anything from going out that very night to taking names and then going sometime that week either way. But Wednesday night seems a better night for us. So we're done with Tuesday night outreach and we're going back to Wednesday night. Okay? Why don't we close in prayer? Jim, would you mind closing? Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.